0: Early on, we were mostly selling to developers because we're an early stage company. They could have a trial beforehand. And so we went from that motion, which was very much centered around the IC, around the individual. And Over time, we started selling to managers and directors and VPs and C-levels. That was a journey that we had to go through. Our struggle was not to get developer love. Our struggle was to get visibility with managers and with the rest of leadership because we wanted to move away from being thought of as this little tool, this little kind of cute if statement that we put in somewhere and some people use it. We wanted to move into helping people understand why this is actually critical to a lot of the major things that you're looking to do.
1: Selling to developers changes as you move up market. In the beginning, most of your growth is product-led. Developers don't want to talk to sales, they just want to get into the tools. Growth happens by having a great product and a strong sales assist motion. But as you shift up market, you're selling to leaders who care more about outcomes than features. Sales starts to feel more like sales. Hector Hernandez, our guest today, has helped three developer software companies make that move up market. Welcome to Grow & Tell, the show where revenue leaders tell the growth stories behind successful companies. I'm your host, Alex Krakow. After three years at Scuba Analytics as Director of North American Sales, Hector Hernandez joined LaunchDarkly as Senior VP of Sales and Customer Success in 2017. Their DevOps platform already had over a million in revenue, but needed to add a sales team to evolve past their product-led motion. Since then, LaunchDarkly has grown to over $60 million in revenue and a $3 billion valuation. In 2020, Hector joined Traceable AI, an API security company, as CRO helping them on their way to a $60 million Series B. Two years ago, Hector started his current role as CRO of Teleport, an identity and access management platform. Today, Hector and I talk about what it's like to join a company in scale mode, how selling to developers changed in 2023, and how to enable a great sales team culture. I hope you enjoy our chat. I'd love to start today's conversation with your time at Launch Darkly, where you were an SVP of sales and success. Can you paint a little bit of a picture of like, what was Launch Darkly like when you joined and why did
0: you decide to, to join the company? Yeah. Sure. So it's always fun to kind of go back through like, you know, memory lane a little bit. Um, before I was at Launch Darkly, I was at a company, I was in an analytics company, and I was at a point where I knew I wanted to kind of take over a team. I wasn't going to do it there because my boss was incredibly capable and he was like one of my mentors. And by all means, me taking over like the team would mean that my, at that time, boss would no longer be there. And I don't know if I would want to be at that company without my boss. So I started looking for different opportunities with his support and he was awesome about it at that time. Like finding a mentor that can be so supportive about like your career and ambitions really early on, um, is, is, is a gift. And when I first, Talked to, to Lon- uh, at directly when I first started kind of that experience. I have kind of a funny story for you. Is after I had started talking with uh, the CEO there, Edith, she asked me to come into the office, and I was like, cool. The office was in downtown Oakland. I live in in Oakland, so I was like, oh, I was super excited to go in. I went in, and I think my meeting was like at nine thirty, and I showed up at nine fifteen, a little bit early. And when I got into the office, there was no front desk. So I like went into the elevator, I came out into the office. And as I walked into the office, everything is pitch dark and this alarm starts going off. And I was like, what is going on? Like, it was like, you know, it was was a sketchy operation to say the least. And like a minute later, someone else came up and they're like, hey, are you Hector? And I was like, oh yeah, it's like, oh, okay. And then they like turned off the alarm and it it had just started, like the day had just kind of started. Um, And it just shows like what a small kind of it was like a small family operation that, you know, really started. So when I first got there, there were two people total kind of on the sales team and really about like two other people on the marketing team. And that's kind of where the journey started. And do you remember what like
1: your early conversations were like with Edith? Like, was she just like, go do sales? Or was she doing a lot of founder-led sales? And you're kind of like helping bridge the gap from founder-led to sales-led sales? Like, what did that really partnership look like in kind of the early days?
0: That's exactly what we were trying to do both. So at first it was all founder-led and she was amazing about it. But she's like, look, I've exhausted my ability to kind of Row this company alone. She did have a funny story where one time, you know, she did a demo or something, and a customer asked her, Hey, how much is this? And she gave them a number. I think it was like, whatever, $20 a month. And they're like, all right, sold, let's do it. And then, you know, later on, she's like, wait, hold on. Maybe I can ask for a little bit more. And over time, that's how she was kind of doing some testing one time, some large company called her up and said, Hey, we saw a demo of your product. Now we want to release this. And it was like a big number, like, Hey, we want to release this to a bunch of people. You know, how, how much is that? And she was like, Oh, and then she dropped like a nice, healthy, big number. And then they're like, Okay, and they like went away. And she was like, Oh, no, like, Oh, my God, what happened like that. And then one day, they just called her. And they're like, "All right, we're ready to move forward. And so she was like, Is that you know, is that how these things work? I was like, No, it's not have these things they don't really work, you know, there's a process, but she will, you know, she muscled and, and willed her way towards really getting a first set of really tremendous customers and really tremendous logos, but she was really looking to kind of scale that out. And so what we did is we started by taking all of the great bits of what she had been doing, learning from them, and then trying to kind of make them our own. Like, how can we come across as subject matter experts or as, you know, really confident, capable people without the founder tag. That was a really hard thing to do. The first few hires were like really tremendous people. You know, the the first three hires there are actually still at the company now, like seven, eight years later. So um, the quality of those first few people and like their spirit, and they're like, let's just try anything was really crucial to it. But that was the initial few months was like, how can we go from like, edith and our co-founder and our our co-founder you know run everything to handing that off to a new team
1: and were you sort of like a player coach in the early days were you leading deals yourself and hopping in things or were you really focused on team building and hiring like how did you sort of think about your priorities as okay hector you're in charge now of sales where did you go where did you start
0: yeah it was an interesting place because there was a lot of demand there was a lot of pent up demand we're getting a lot of inbound there was a they originally, you know, one of the co-founders came from Atlassian. And so they knew that like self-serve motion really well. And so they had really tried to get that going. And though the self-serve motion wasn't allowing them to grow by as much as they wanted to, to really have, you know, a fast growing company, it did provide very consistent pipeline already. So my role coming in was really to add more capacity to the team. There was a lot of coaching, but I didn't even early on, I didn't take any like opportunities on my own. There are some places where you go where you do have to do that, but the dynamics at, at LD at that time were just, we needed to gain more capacity. So my focus was really on supporting the current team that was already there and hiring more folks and enabling more folks. It was also on adding additional functions that we didn't have. So we really just had two sellers. That was like the entire realm. Um, we had another person that was kind of doing... Marketing product stuff. So we brought him into, you know, back into the sales organization. And then we started adding solutions engineers. We started adding, you know, a sales operations team to really help us elevate some of these things. Over time, as that continued to grow, and as we started to see like capacity being tapped out with the team and we started growing the team and adding to it, then what we did is we started doing segmentation where we moved from, you know, someone was talking to, IBM in the morning and some charity in, you know, in Brazil in the afternoon to like segmenting, like you should only have conversations with these types of customers and you should only have conversations with these types of customers, not only because the value proposition is different, but because the overall motion is, as you know, very well now, Alex is, is very different, right? You go from, I can potentially put down a credit card to okay here is my security team i need you to help me through get through this i need you to put together a bva so that you know i can get sponsorship from my eb on this and i need you to help go through procurement and we have to go through legal so there's all those jumps so it was at first one person managed two very different types of sales motion and then over time as we continued to mature we started to have more and more specialization
1: and was it hard selling to developers so i assume that was like your main ICP, but let me know. Yeah. Okay. So you're selling to developers. Like, I feel like developers are notoriously like, don't want to talk to sales. And so how did you deal with that dynamic at LaunchDarkly?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You're right. Um, Everything you said is right, but there are like different nuances to it. So early on, we were mostly selling to developers because we're early stage company. And we had kind of this, not really PLG, but a very like, you know, um, they could try, they could have a trial beforehand. And so we went from that motion, which was very much centered around the IC, around the individual. And then over time, we started selling to managers and directors and VPs and C-levels. That was a journey that we had to go through. But at first, when we were working directly with developers, the interesting part is eventually when they tried the tool on their own, they needed someone to help them. It's the old like sales assisted model, right? That even even the ICs were like, okay, I really like what I have here. This is going to cost me more than I want to put on a credit card. I need you to help me fill out this security questionnaire. Or I need you to talk to my procurement person because they want to know that you have SOC 2. So they would bring us in, but these were like very qualified like PQLs. This is before the time when like all of these Definitions and things really existed. And so a lot of it was assisting the customer through the process. Now, very early on, what we also established, like one of the other functions that we established, is an SDR function. So when we first started with only two AEs, they were really just managing inbound. There was a strong belief in the marketplace that you can't outbound to developers. And that is, for the most part, true. But you can... If you see a lot of interest in, in your company, either through your website or maybe a cluster of people are starting a trial or something like that, you can't outbound to, to the managers or the directors, right? That was the beginning of our journey up. And those people are highly responsive when they know about the company, when there is something that they need. And so we started just augmenting what we were doing. And what that added to us is we had access to higher level folks earlier making our deals you know, larger. And it also helped us become more of a driver of the sales motion. Then essentially, in a self-assisted mode, you're oftentimes kind of siloed to a passenger. You can still do things to become more aggressive, but your your place is definitely a little bit different. It's super interesting how it seems like you're
1: you're basically a developer advocate going in, helping the developers get more out of the tool, and then taking that positive momentum to go find champions internally, go find other people, multi-thread the deal and try and, get, I guess, get it to a sort of a, a broader organizational wide deployment and kind of take it from an engineer messing around to like, okay, this is actually like a product or CTO level initiative.
0: Yeah, there was a, uh, there was a couple of our customers where like there was someone that just Got the tool and like loved it so much. It's something that was unique about that that product that you know we all wish we could have like everywhere. Where there was just like real love from the community really really early on. And so there were many times when someone would come in and they would make a purchase for I'm talking about literally like five hundred dollars in ARR, not MRR, but an ARR. And then over time you would look, you would track that account, and they would go from five hundred dollars to five thousand dollars to fifteen thousand dollars, and then. And then, you know, they would really team with us. And then you would see like, whoa, okay, you know, instead of going through that trajectory, every six months, you're going out by 50K, 100K. Three years later, that account that started at $500 a month was paying us, you know, eight, 900K. Uh, it took years to get there, but it was, it was the learning that was happening on both sides. And it was only made possible because that one really early on engineer or architect had such love and affinity for the solution.
1: I mean, it sounds like LaunchDarkly sort of nailed product market fit pretty early on. But I'm curious, like as you're moving, I always think product marketing fit is like a moving target. You might have it in one segment for a developer, but then as you're moving up market, trying to sell bigger deals, I'm sure there's like gaps in the product or maybe people don't believe your value prop as much. Like, What was that journey moving up market like for you at LaunchDarkly and how were you able to kind of close bigger and bigger deals over time?
0: It sounds like we we got product market fit pretty quickly, but keep in mind, like before I joined, I'm sure they were duking yeah. it out, right? They're like, yeah. so I don't <laughs> want to like I, I don't want to short sell all the work that the team had done the two and a half years or three years before I was there to really get to the point where it was. But you're right, the product market fit there was really remarkable. It was pretty tremendous. So how did we actually start kind of closing bigger and bigger deals? Well, it started with a couple of things that we did early on. Number one is the segmentation. So having different people focus on, on different things, this is obvious to a lot of people that have, that are already at large scaled out companies or that have gone through it. But in the early days, especially with technical founders, it's not that obvious. It's not like, oh, okay. Like, oh, I didn't realize I needed to segment. And where do I segment and how do I treat these people? And how do I compliment, what's the plan? And like, how do I measure success? So we were kind of going through all this. Um we were fortunate enough to be able to up level most of the existing team, you know, because they were really sharp, great early hires. And then we started hiring into those specialized roles. So we wouldn't we would hire someone that had experience managing that was familiar with things that sales folks are familiar with once, you know, you go through large transactions, right? They were familiar with MedPick. They understood what it was to build a champion and challenge a champion. And like, so it was a combination of bringing the team up as well as kind of bringing in folks to augment that skill set. And when we brought in folks, we had a great culture where every new person, whatever skill they had, we magically were able to kind of see it spread across you know the org so like oh wow i've never seen this you know uh, business value assessment but this person over here is using it i'm gonna go take that and so that's something that that was a way in which we were able to kind of grow it's a different man i'm gonna sound so old but it, it was like a different time because that company was all built out of oakland the office was there and everybody went in and if you needed help you would just like turn and be like hey can you help me or you would hear something and say like, oh, I want to pick that up. Now the world is different. Like where I'm at Teleport, we're, we're much more distributed very, very early on. And so we have to be intentional about how we do that in a very, you just have to be very intentional about it versus in the past. It just kind of happened.
1: I'm curious, were there any memorable deals from your time at LaunchDarkly that sort of stand out or any fun closing stories? One thing
0: that I, I do remember doing that was fun is that one time, Edith, invited me to go on a, to some CTO connect thing. It was a conference and we presented and the night before we were going to present um, or she was going to present. And I was there kind of, you know, meeting a bunch of the other you know, leaders. we were asked, Hey, do you want to, do you want to ring the bell at the, or do you want to hit the button at NASDAQ? They're like, they're like, we had a company that they pulled out and like CTO connect people are going to do it. And I remember going through that with her at the time and just like really seeing it. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like this is all this, because it wasn't, you know, our company, but just seeing and being there makes you so hungry to be like, ah, I got to get here on my own. I got to like come do this because like the feeling of just being able to do that is something that has like forever stuck with me. Like I gotta feel this again. I got to do this one more time. I mean, I got to do this with, with my logo in the background.
1: Yeah, now you're going to do it with Teleport soon enough, uh, which yeah. we will get to.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm
1: curious, like, when you're thinking about growing out a sales team and hiring sales folks who go sell into developers, like, is there a specific profile you look for because you're selling it to developers or does it really not matter and they just sort of have those sales skills? And then the sort of flip side of that question is like, is there, do you need to mold the training program in a different way because you are selling to a more technical audience? Like, how do you sort of think about that, that problem?
0: Yeah. Early on, this was specifically, this was definitely true, um, where we would mostly hire people that had already sold to developers. And it's interesting because They understood that with that persona at that time. Also, I think developer sales has changed a lot in the last couple of years. But with that persona at that time, when really for the first time in the market, developers were a buying engine, they were kind of a buying center. Before that, it wasn't really like, you know, before they were able to run credit cards and do their own trials and stuff like that. It wasn't how it worked. Like SaaS really allowed this. You know, before then it was mostly IT teams that were able to buy stuff because everything had to be deployed and installed on-prem. Now, when things are just, you know, download this trial and get going, obviously it, it really changed the dynamics, the power dynamics. We mostly hired folks that had previously sold to developers because they understood developers want to see a lot of value up front especially when it's smaller deal IC driven at that time, they don't necessarily so much care about like the vision of where you're going to go as a company. They need some, some support on like solving their particular problem. Like they really want to figure out like I have X thing that I need to do, help me get that thing done. So the initial sales team was really focused on what I would call or what, I mean, what the market calls product sales, which is like you're a real expert on the product and you know like all the speeds and feeds and you collect the customer's you know, problem and you try to figure out how you can wedge your product into that set of problems. That was great and fine and it allowed us to grow quite a bit. But over time, we had to move from product sales to solution sales and that's a much bigger leap to take. And the kind of seller that we brought in when we needed to make that leap was different. Um, we were able to like enable and train some of the folks we had for sure. But in general, we would start with folks in the early days. We started with folks that had sold the developers. In the later stages, we started with folks that had that had sold complex solutions. We preferred if it was like, you know, in the part of the infrastructure stack, but they we, there was definitely more of an emphasis on sales regimen and sales skills and that experience versus necessarily the, the, the being able to talk to developers piece.
1: And you had mentioned at the beginning, like Launch Darkly was sort of your your first shot, I guess, like really running yeah. a whole org, right? That's what you wanted. I guess you were at Scuba Analytics right before and and you didn't get that chance there for, for good reasons. And so this was sort of your first shot. I'm like, yeah. I wonder how that was for you on a personal level. Like, what was the hardest part about doing all this? How were you able to kind of figure it out and and manage kind of this new world?
0: Because you had never done this job before. I always tell people that having a really strong mentor is like worth it's weight in gold, you know, um, having people that you can go to, to help ask those questions that you feel are kind of like silly questions. You're like, oh, man, like, I don't want to ask someone, but I don't know how I should structure a comp plan for an SDR. Like, what should I do here? Like, you know, and like having that community of people that can help walk you through stuff is amazing. Like, that's definitely something that I think is needed. Um, And then also eventually realizing that none of this stuff is like just, no one is like just born knowing the blocking and tackling operational stuff. Some people are great sellers because they're naturally great presenters or, you know, they're very charismatic or they have, you know, great relationships or a great network. But even those folks, once they go into leading a team or even managing a team, a lot of those dynamics are new. So, trying to move past that imposter syndrome and just understanding like, it's more important that I recognize my gaps than to try to ignore them. Like knowing that they're a gap, I can actually start working towards them. Not knowing that it's a gap, it's just gonna, it's just gonna continue to be a problem. So that was a big transition. Um, I think in the beginning, we again, I will emphasize the importance of hiring, we had a really... Strong team that allowed me to maybe not be as concerned with like the day to day, like how was that call? Like, did we say the right things? Did we make sure we didn't offend anyone? Like, it was it was a team that was like really able to um, handle the majority of the day to day tasks. We would need some direction, and we would review stuff, and we'd review calls, and we would go through best practices but they were really, really capable and competent. And that gave me the ability to go focus on how we were actually gonna scale the team. The last thing I'll mention on that is everything is very, um, a lot of this is based on where the company is at the time and what it needs. Um, again, it's, it's, it's an enviable position to come into a company and, and having the first thing you need to do is really scale. Like that's very, that's not, that's not always what happens. Oftentimes you have to come in and like, as you mentioned, what you have to do is you need to figure out what is the product market fit? What is the value? What is the competitive landscape? And so it's the the things you would do would be slightly different. But when the product market fit is really strong and you already have some demand coming in and you can just focus on the challenges of scaling, it, it doesn't make it any easier, but it allows you to focus a lot more.
1: And at LaunchDarkly, you were also responsible for customer success, which I yeah. think was maybe a new area for you to kind of be in charge right. of. Like, how did you think about building up the CS motion in that department at LaunchDarkly? Like, was it just hire really good people and kind of let them run it? And like, what does CS look like for a developer? Or because I imagine there's a lot of, um, you know, developers are pretty like self-sustaining. They wanted, they can do things on their own. So what does that actually kind of look like?
0: Yeah, that was a growing experience. I and mean, we definitely kind of stubbed our toes. Um, several times, there was a natural, like I mentioned earlier, there was like the natural like love for the brand, for the product, which served us really well. And it was also a fairly sticky product. Like once it got implemented, it was kind of a pain to get rid of. So we were definitely working with the wind, you know, at our back. A lot of the CS focus on the early days was partially support and then partially um, how do we expand this? Like, where do we go next? If we're, if five people are using us, how can we get another five people to use us, another 10 people to use us? Um, we had, we, at first we hired and we had um, a persona for what we were hiring and, and it wasn't, we didn't like nail it because we were really focused on like the support piece of it, like the technical capabilities, but we weren't so much focused on the growing piece. And, and what you want out of your CS team is not someone that's only going to be providing technical support. You really want there to be a strong focus on how do we, um, if we're not expanding the account, are we at least expanding our influence within the account? At least are we able to get higher uh, into the accounts so, so that we're setting ourselves up for growing in the future? Or for at least, you know, if, if it's not wallet share, it's at least mind share for that organization. So we did go through an evolution early on to try and find you know, like the right kind of candidate that would fit our needs. Now, even though it was a developer sale and a developer motion, you know, again, as I kind of mentioned a little bit earlier, our struggle was not to get developer love. Our struggle was to get visibility with managers and with the rest of leadership, because we wanted to move away from being thought of as this little tool, this little kind of cute if statement that we put in somewhere and some, some people use it. We wanted to move into, under, into helping people understand why this is actually critical to a lot of the major things that you're looking to do. And so we started playing with some messaging on the CS side to move away from being, you know, features functionality centric to more kind of use case centric, trying to pitch or sell other use cases to other people within the company to try to really not only find more users, but also up level our standing within the account. Like, yeah, we are that thing that you use to turn, you know, um, to turn some of your infrastructure on and off, but we are also powering the digital transformation that your CEO was talking about, you know, at, at the last, you know, board reading. So once we were, you know, CS was a way that we were able to, um, have a lot of those, of those conversations. And oftentimes those conversations were had by our CEO, but CS was like the vehicle in which you were able to get access to like some of the senior people that we needed.
1: I'd love to switch gears a little bit and talk about what you're up to now. So you're the CRO of Teleport, which is another developer software company. Um, Can you talk about like why you joined Teleport and explain a little bit like what, what is Teleport?
0: Sure. No worries. Well, I joined Teleport because I had a strong relationship with people that were already in the company. So I, I kind of knew a little bit about it, and I got really excited by not only um, the trajectory of the company, but the value proposition in the way that they were talking about like where this market was headed. So what we do is we really are the way in which people access all their infrastructure and really anything in their cloud or, or in their environment. Developers use teleport in order to securely access everything that they have. And as they talked to me more about like where they were heading and the things that they were doing, it was evident early on that though, right now this was perceived or seen as a maybe single purpose solution, like, oh, this is how your developer gets access to securely gets access to a a Kubernetes environment or, or a Windows box even though that's what it was, and that's what the market understood, the long term vision was very, very big, and it was very broad. And it would solve like really complex business cases, it would also be able to consolidate what is a really confusing and really cluttered space. You know, right now, companies use, I don't know, a dozen tools to achieve what we're kind of slowly chipping away and can achieve under a single, a single solution. And I thought that was really exciting. Having the vision for a full platform so early on is one of the most it's like one of the one of those exciting moments as a sales leader. Right. Because you're like, not only can I see how we're going to get to the next milestone, but you can see how this is going to become like a really big thing. And as a seller or as a as a professional in in sales or marketing or, or rev ops, all you want is a shot. That's all you want. Like, just give me a shot to be able to do that. And Teleport checked all those boxes.
1: And what was the company like when you joined? Like how many people were there? And like, what was the kind of the state of the go-to-market team?
0: It was really interesting. It was a very successful uh, company already. So it was much larger, it was many, many times larger than LD when I joined there. And what was interesting about it is that, again, at LD, I started... And it was like, we need to scale, you know, because we have a lot of capacity. Teleport, it was really similar. But the timing at Teleport was like really interesting. Like I started in late February, early March of 2022, which is also kind of when, you know, tanks started coming into Ukraine from Russia. And like like the series of events that happened to the market really impacted what we could do. Whereas at LD, the market for the most part stayed out of our way. Like it was, it was a 2016, 2017, it was a good market and it was growing. It wasn't, but it wasn't like anything particularly, Oh, well, there were no major disturbances until COVID happened. And obviously that was a pretty big one. So, but here, very early on, there were like major macro shifts that impacted our ability to perform against like the plans that we had. So it has for me and for us, as I'm sure it has for everyone, it required you to relearn or have a lot of agility on, okay, like this is how we've done things for the last few years. And this has gotten us here. Let's take all the best bits of that. And then let's figure out how to like redo it because the world has shifted.
1: What's an example of something you you maybe changed or shifted in in your in your process?
0: You know, little things. I'll go with one that I think is pretty um, ubiquitous, and that you know, I think anyone that 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 you talk to will will be able to relate to. It's the fact that there was a, a point in time, there was a big chunk of time when money was readily accessible, and when you were going out to sell, what that normally meant because money was readily accessible is that you could get approvals at some relatively low levels, you know, you get approvals for a healthy deal. um, Let's say 75k 50k, just to use a number, you could get approvals on a pretty healthy deal from a manager, or a director. And if they told you, Yeah, I have this budget, and I can spend it, they meant it. And you went through your motion and, and you were able to close that deal. You still had to work for it, and you had to win it, and there was legal. There was still a lot of work that needed to be done, and it was hard. And you know, closing new business in in our industry is never easy. But the gold line never shifted. We have cash to spend on this, and they did spend it on that. About 18 months ago, we saw a really, really quick shift from, yes, I have this money and I can spend it, to, yes, I had this money. But now I'm being told that there's a new process, and I don't know that new process. It's not only that they didn't have the money to spend anymore. It's that they didn't even know what the process was to do it. And oftentimes, the process would end with like, oh, now our CFO needs to approve everything. So going one quarter when you're working with like a mid-level manager or a director who has their budget, who's not really asking a lot of questions and closing it, Shifting over to like now, the CFO needs to approve every single spend. Same seventy-five k dollar deal. That is a dramatic shift in your ability to forecast. It it really changes all of your core metrics because sales process and sales cycle length, a core part of so many of the key metrics that we are all that we all use to measure, you know, the health of ourselves and that uh, the industry uses to measure the health of our company. So that small thing would add weeks, if not months to the approval process. And then oftentimes they would just say no. Like, yeah, we did have that budget, but you know what? We're cutting back on everything. We're now freezing all spend. It was the speed at which that shifted that most impacted us. It wasn't like gradually over time, we saw the level of approval and the amount of time it took slowly increase. It was like, April to May. It was April. We're still going. We're still closing this. In May, it was like, hold the phones. Everything is now paused.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that is such a good story because I think it's something we've all been feeling in SAS over the past couple yeah. of years is, you know, it puts so much more pressure. I imagine you had to like change the whole way you even pitched the product and trying to build a business case and show the value to like the CFO and the executive Level team who probably barely even understood some of these the implications of some of these infrastructure things. I can't imagine like teaching a CFO about the developer side of things. That must be very challenging.
0: Yeah, like uh, we would tell the team like just assume that the CFO has no idea what this is and doesn't care what it is. Like, why does it matter to them? Like, why does it matter to the business? What is the thing that is being held up? And it's hard for a sales team or even a sales leader that has mostly sold or grown up through the Zerp era of SaaS to make that transition so quickly. So people, the market was punishing reps for doing things that it had rewarded earlier. So it went from rewarding speed and just cutting through things and just like high transaction, and it just really quickly punished people. So people that had grown up thinking like, oh, I can make my number by doing these things all of a sudden woke up one day and they had to like go back and read up on the old school sales books, right? Like, hold on. All right. I need to be multi-threaded into this opportunity. And I don't know who my EB is. I need to go figure out how to get in front of my EB. And there were some simple questions that we were starting to ask. And I don't blame us for not necessarily asking these before because people were were, were transacting, but something like, have you ever bought a solution like this before at your company? Because people jump around companies a lot, our buyers jump around a lot. Have you ever bought a solution like this at your company? And if they said no, well, it's like, oh, who has at your company and can we get them involved? Like, can we get them to be our Sherpas to kind of help us figure out like, what are the next steps that need to happen? And if the answer is like, yes, I've bought something like this before. A very simple question was like, okay, when? And if it wasn't in the last quarter, it would be like, hey, are you sure that that's how your company still buys? Like, have there been any changes, you know, to your company that would indicate that this is shifting? And that was true not only in the mid-market and SMB segment, but like those shifts happen at the enterprise as well. Like, you know, I have a lot of empathy for procurement folks because I've worked with so many in my career. And I know that they have a very important role that they play for organizations. And I, I know that the last year or so they were like, you know, they, they kind of got a little bit of power back and they're, they're very happy to kind of flex that a little bit because for a long time, the buying process got away from them. People were buying things on their own. People were coming to them saying like, Hey, I downloaded this thing and then I used a bunch of it and now I owe them $20,000. Now I owe them $50,000. Can you please pay this? And like, what? Like, what do you mean? Like you just started using this and, and, and now they were able to kind of bring things back in and they were able to establish their own procurement best practices, which maybe had gotten away from them. So the market has definitely corrected in the power on the buying and procurement side. I'd love to
1: talk a little bit about, I think one thing unique about teleport is like there's an open source element to it, right? And so how does like having an open source element to your business sort of impact like your sales and customer success motion? How do you sort of play with that open source community?
0: Oh, that's a, a that is like an entire half day conversation for us about like how this becomes really unique. The one thing that open source does give you is it does give you like a lot of again, a community It gives you like a lot of love. It also gives you for for us, we're really kind of, you know, in the security space. There's nothing better than being able to just go show people like the like, look, this isn't a black box. You can go see everything that's going on in there. Like you can you can audit it yourself. You can go through that entire process and be like really and rest assured that, you know, we've built a really strong product. So it does give you a lot of credibility and it does give you a lot of momentum. Actually, right now, I haven't checked in the last few months, but I have been told that Teleport is the security product with the most GitHub stars out there. So, like, that's great. Like, that shows like wide adoption, wide love. It helps you understand that, wow, there is like real pain that we're solving here if if it's this widely adopted. On the other side, there is an additional hurdle that you need to jump, which is like making sure the customer sees enough value in your enterprise solution or in your paid for solution that they can't get just with open source. And that's not only a sales or marketing problem, or it's not only up to the leaders there or the individuals there to solve. That is a company-wide process that you need to go through. Product and engineering are vital to that. Understanding why are people using this and what kind of people are using this, right? If there's a bunch of Smaller companies, so there's a bunch of people using it for, you know, uh, their network at home or for a side project. That's great. That's what it's there for. If you have a Fortune 500 using it and rolling it out to, you know, 20,000 uh, users, then you're like, hold on, like, that's ne- that was never really our intent. Our intent was never to have this be, you know, rolled out in this way. So how, why is that possible? What should we do? Are we comfortable with that? maybe we are right but like how do we optimize this so that the customer gets value so that the right targets are using that solution and then the right folks are finding enough value in your enterprise product to you know kind of continue that journey and it takes a lot of iteration
1: yeah. I imagine it must be very interesting to figure out, okay, what are those like product triggers between the open source side and the enterprise side that cause people to upgrade? And then I'm sure there's a ton of experimentation that goes into that. I think one huge benefit I see of open source is you have like this defined pool to sort of fish from, from like a uh, outbound sales perspective. Do you just like outbound to all the people who are doing things in GitHub? And is that kind of how the sales motion works? Or do you let people come to you? Like, how do you, I don't know, do that in a tasteful way? Because I'm sure sure if you're two sales each of the community, they might revolt back to you. So like,
0: I don't know. How do you think about that? We've been pretty conservative. I think I like where your head is at. And I'll have you talk to my uh, engineering leadership about kind of being able to do that. But um, we don't collect any data from our open source community at all. It's really important for us to make sure, especially with the kind of product that we have, we have no idea. Yeah, I guess security too. Yeah. I could see how like if we did have a product and we were collecting like, All the information about who the companies are it would it would be like hey we know exactly who to go after so we have to use different kinds of data we use third-party intent data you know we use different things to kind of understand uh some of the organizations that may be leveraging it or more importantly that are in the market for a solution like it so what we really do gain is a lot of developer love we gain a lot of adoption we you know our code base is probably stronger because of it without a doubt There are a lot of really large companies that say the fact that you are open source made us feel comfortable moving forward. So there are a lot of benefits on the go to market side. It can be a double edged sword. You know, it can be you you need to convince people that they need to move to the enterprise. And oftentimes, like with us, and and I'm sure a lot of other companies out there, you actually don't know who's using it. But on the flip side of that, it's really nice to sometimes get on a call and say, hey, you know how did you hear about Teleport? And they'll be like, and they'll say something like, oh, we've been running it for, you know, we've been running Teleport for a year and now we need some of the enterprise functionality. It's like, we, we, we love the product. It's great. Um, you guys have done a great job. Like now let's figure out how to scale this. And that that's just, that's just fun. And you you never get that if you don't have that before. At best you have like freemium or like maybe extended trials But people don't really productionalize a 14-day trial for sure or a freemium product like they do something that's open source. I
1: also love what you said earlier about like the transparency in the code. And like I imagine that just is so important when you're selling a security product for people to product for people to go in there, pick it apart, you know, and see actually what is behind the scenes, which is so different than any other SaaS product that's out there. And and I'm sure all your competitors as well. So that's a very interesting dynamic. I never, never thought about.
0: It is, we get some really interesting comments. So like, uh, I've been really fortunate in the companies that I've worked with that, like people really do love the platform and people will come to us at trade shows, you know, or something and they'll come up and they're like, Hey, I just wanted to say, thank you. Like you guys have built an amazing product and you know, we use it all the time and we think it's invaluable to us. And I just wanted to like, shake your hand. And then you take credit as if you were the developer that was actually doing it. But you're like, no, like that, God, man, like, doesn't that pump you up? Like, don't you want to turn around and be like, yeah, let's go, like, figure out how we can get this in the hands of more people because it's actually providing value. It's something that is really at the core, making a company more efficient and more secure. And as salespeople, if you're not highly motivated by the product or by the solution that you're selling, it's hard to bring your whole Heart into it, because we and Alex, you know this. We've talked about it. We lose and fail way more than we win on a daily basis. Our emails and our resp- like everything we deal with 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 losses all the time. And sometimes you deal with them for many days or many weeks in a row. In the large enterprise cell, you can deal with it for like a couple of quarters. You're just like losing and losing and losing. If you don't believe in what you have, that it is actually better for society or for the market, or that there is like someone out there that's really benefiting from what you're doing, it can be really hard to get through those through those dips in the you know in your in your cycles. I'd love to end today's
1: conversation talking a little bit about what it's like building a remote. Sales culture. I think you mentioned before, Teleport's pretty remote, and it's very yeah. different than what you're doing at at LD. So, how do you think about building a remote sales culture? Because I think sales, especially, seems like one of the hardest departments
0: to do that in. I will give you kind of some of the things that I've noticed and I've seen, but I want to make it clear that I'm I could probably learn how to do this better from other folks. So I'll be keeping an eye on this channel, and whenever you have someone that has nailed this, you know, I'll be I'll be listening in. What I have learned is that. No matter what, our particular organization, I don't think this is particular to Teleport, I think all sales or revenue organizations are like this, it is really important to connect every once in a while in person. Those become some of the most impactful sessions that we ever do. And we only get together a couple times a year. But every time the feedback is like, I wish we did this more often. Like I learned so much or like this thing that, you know, that people were trying to explain to me for six months, I finally got it. I finally got it because I was able to do that. So if you can leverage in person and it doesn't always have to be like everyone, you know, it doesn't have to be hundreds of people. It's nice to do that because people can cross-pollinate. But even if you're just able to get small clusters of people together more often, it's very positive. You know, you build community. The the real big struggle outside of enablement, which again, not something that I've totally nailed on like how to properly enable people remotely. But outside of enablement, it's the culture piece that we really um, lose by not seeing each other. You know, it's really simple for me to be here on the screen, and then just close it and then go off and do whatever with my day, it becomes like a transaction, like this becomes very transactional. It's very different from like shaking someone's hand or breaking bread with them or just being able to hear about how their life is going outside of you having to schedule time to talk about how is life going like that, that organic, those human elements are lost. And when you're able to connect people, what happens is that this relationship goes from being transactional, like I'm doing this and I'm going to click this off and now I'm not doing this. I'm going to do something else to there actually being some connective tissue. Like I want to do this thing that you're asking me, not only because it's my job, but because I know you and because I know that you need this for X, Y, Z reason. I know that this is a really important part of your career. You're trying to grow your career and if I'm able to help you with this, it'll move you forward. You know, I want to I want to um I want to be of service to you. You know, that is something that gets lost if people don't have that personal connection. And so again, I've I've I I don't have all the answers. I'm sure my team can tell you about all the ways in which, you know, um We maybe haven't rolled things out um, perfectly, but one big learning that I have had is that even if you're fully remote, finding opportunities to get people together is really, really important. I know it's not like groundbreaking, but I have seen it with my own eyes be a huge difference maker.
1: Well, thank you so much for the time today, Hector. If people want to follow up, ask questions, where's the best place for them to find you?
0: you know, I'm I'm on LinkedIn and I will chat with most people that hit me up there. I'm also on X. I can send you over my information so people can kind of link to on that. Those are probably the easiest mediums to get in touch with. me. Right on. Thank you.
1: That's a wrap on another episode of Grow & Tell. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform or find every episode at growandtellshow.com. I'm your host, Alex Krakow. Thank you for listening.